Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1817. Be prepared to be inspired. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana, where they have a little race. They have lots of races there, but they have one a little race that we've all heard about. And I'm talking with a very special guest by the name of John Oriovitz, who's literally can walk out of his house and walk to the track. John, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have any gear? Are you ready to release the clutch? <laughs> Thank you, Mark. And yes, indeed, I am. You know, uh, before I ask you this first question and I give you a proper introduction, we discovered something kind of interesting today. John is my guest number 1,817. Those numbers mean a little something to you, right? They do, Mark. In 1997 and 1998, I worked for a uh, an IndyCar team called PacWest Racing, uh, owned by Bruce McCaw. We had Mauricio Gugelman and Mark Blundell as our drivers. And our numbers were 18 and 17 for Mark and Mauricio. So, so that is a that is a highly unusual number for for this podcast to be to have that type of connection to something that was pretty special to me. <laughs> well, and here's another interesting connection. Uh, Macaw is up here in the Pacific Northwest. I met him years ago when I moved here, 27 years ago actually. He was very nice to let me into his facility. We shot a lot of his cars, and when I started vintage racing, my first vintage race, I was in a Formula Junior. The famed are the famous people. They always brought famous people to the Fourth uh, of July races in Sovereign were those two drivers. Oh, no kidding. I got to meet them. Also, Danny Sullivan was there. I've got a picture of him holding my son when my son was only about a year old. Hi. Yeah. So, and I remember PacWest having one of their cars there at the facility, Indy Cars That Raced. And uh, that car is probably still at Macaw Shop, VRM, along with all the other wonderful vehicles I have. So, you know, very interesting how 1817 had some <laughs> relevance to our meeting today, John. Now, let me ask you this too, before I give you a proper introduction. What's one little thing most people don't know about you. I think the most simple thing in that regard is, is that I'm very closely associated with IndyCar racing. And as you mentioned, I live three blocks from turn one of the speedway, but I'm, I'm not a Hoosier. I'm a Pennsylvania native. Okay. I'm a product of graduate students that bounced around uh, college towns in my youth before we finally moved to another, another college town, West Lafayette, Indiana. And it was then that uh, when I moved to West Lafayette and, and uh, went on a field trip to the, to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway the next year, that's, that's when this all kind of coalesced into the life I've lived since then. It's fascinating. Now, I have to ask, because the first time I went to the Indy 500, uh, there's, it's so odd when you go there because there's all these houses like right next to the track. It's, it's like the track's yep. built in the middle of a city, which it is. But uh, one of the things I noticed is we had to pay, I think we paid somebody $150 to park on their lawn so we could walk one block. So uh, <laughs> is that one that's, way you make some extra like change? in the early 90s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> doesn't sound like any time recently. But no, that is a, that's a neighborhood tradition. I mean, technically, I, I have an Indianapolis or a Speedway zip code. Speedway is the town of Speedway. Yeah. Uh, I technically live in the old Speedway town, which was the original town that was built in the early 1900s. And my own home was constructed in 1934 and updated various times since then. And there, anybody who's lived in the neighborhood for a while, there's some kind of story about drivers staying in their in their house or their basement, 
in my own house here, Tony Holman was said to have stored spare cars in the garage. Pit crews, uh, the, the lady lady of the house, uh, uh, would cook meals and do laundry for pit crews. And uh, yeah. there, there was definitely a, a community spirit when, when the sport was very different back then in the 50s. Sure. Well, very cool stuff. Well, let me give you an introduction, and we're going to dive into what we're talking about today, which is your life and also a new book, which is very cool. John Oriovich is a lifelong car enthusiast whose passion led him to a successful and fulfilling career as a motorsports journalist. He attended the Indianapolis 500 for the first time in 1978 and worked the IndyCar beat as a writer and publicist for nearly 30 years. His professional affiliation included ESPN and National Speed a Sport News. John has authored numerous IndyCar books, his latest being Indy Split, that will be released by Octane Press on May 30th, coming up very soon here. The book focuses on the politics and infighting that prevented the sport of IndyCar racing from achieving its potential, allowing NASCAR, those guys, to become synonymous for racing in America. Known within the industry as Oreo, I love that. Who doesn't love an Oreo? John lives a short walk, as he said, from turn one of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. We'll be back in one moment, but first a word from our value sponsors. So give them a listen. Keep the seatbelts on. We're at Indianapolis, baby, and we'll be right back. One of your vehicle's interior surfaces that gets a lot of abuse is your dashboard. The sun beats down and those damaging UV rays cause massive heat cycles, resulting in color changes and sometimes cracks. My friends at Covercraft have a great solution for you and for me. Their custom-tailored dash mats protect your dash from heat buildup while providing a stylish solution. You can choose from a variety of styles and colors, including carpet, suede mat, that's the one I have for my vehicles, Carhartt limited edition velour mats, and the Ultimat for trucks and SUVs. Another great benefit of your Covercraft dash mat is that it eliminates the harsh glare the sun produces from your dash to the inside of your windshield, which can make driving a hazard. Covercraft's dash mat design center is located in Arizona, where they know about harsh sun. I've got a special deal for you. If you use the code YEAH21, Y-E-A-H-21 at Covercraft.com, you'll get 10% off your Covercraft order. That's right, 10% off. Just use the code YEAH21 at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. Most people don't think about their collector car insurance until their annual premium becomes due. Well, why wait and see if there are better options for your beloved rides? I didn't. Did you know if you change carriers before your policy runs out, your insurance company has to refund you the unearned portion of your policy premium? I did my homework, I shopped around, and I found American Collectors Insurance. And that's who protects my Porsche Turbo. That's right, the one I call my Orange Crush. They've been protecting collector vehicles since 1976. I encourage you to call my friends at American Collectors Insurance. Ask them about their agreed value policy. And if your collector vehicle is on your regular auto policy, you will be shocked at the savings, not to mention the assurance, should something bad happen to your ride, that you'll get what your vehicle is actually worth. Give them a call today for a quote at 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866-224-9324. Tell them you're a friend of Mark Green at Cars Yeah. American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. Automotive enthusiasts just like you and me. That's American Collectors Insurance. Give them a call today. 
All right, John, we're back. So let's dive a little deeper into corner one uh, since you're so close to that and talk a bit more first about your career. I'd love to hear more about that. And then let's dive into this book because when the big split happened, oh my gosh, did that create a massive amount of turmoil. And I love the fact that you've written a book that we can go back now and learn what really was going on. But let's start with your career. Well, but most basically, I'm a freelance writer and I've focused on mainly on IndyCar racing, although I'm really enjoyed the opportunity to cover some NASCAR and the occasional Formula One race and MotoGP and drag racing and IMSA sports car racing. I do as much as anything these days, but I, I got a lucky break. I feel like I kind of wasted my teenage years. I went back to college, thought I needed to get a degree if I was going to go out and be a journalist. And I was going to uh, Indiana University at the Indianapolis campus here, getting close to graduating, I thought. And it was the year that Nigel Mansell raced, came over and raced in the CART-sanctioned IndyCar series. He was the reigning Formula One champion at the time. And his presence over here, it, it just brought unprecedented worldwide media interest to IndyCar racing. The series had already been very successful growing in the 80s under CART's leadership. And when Mansell came over here, it just it blew up. But it, it created demand for coverage. So I started out with a, a boost from Nigel Mansell, helping out with coverage for some English magazines, Autocar and Autosport. And Autosport's kind of the English language Bible of, of car racing fans around the world. You know, it, it was hard to, to latch on as a freelancer. And, and I did some PR work for places like Mid-Ohio, the track, and Raynard, the chassis constructor. And in 97 and 98, as I mentioned, I worked for PacWest Racing for Bruce McCaw's team. You know, at the time, I, it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. It was something I felt I had to do just to, to kind of get more established in the industry and everything. But it turned out to be two of the, the best years of my life just because of the lifelong friends that I've made and just, just how much I learned uh, about the business of racing and just how a team operates. And it, it made me so much better prepared to step back into the media, which I did at a higher level in 1999. And, you know, the, the greatest thing about the PacWest experience was making the friends, Mauricio, Mark, Bruce McCaw. You know, Ziggy Harkis, he's a guy you'll hear on IndyCar broadcasts. He's with the Andretti team these days. Russ Cameron, the late John Anderson, Steve Fusick, who's Takuma Sato's manager these days. You know, just, just lifelong friendships and industry connections that I really value and appreciate. And, and of course, Bruce, I'm just, he's been vital in the production of certainly of Indy Split, but before that, the last book I did, which was a history of the PacWest team that, that I, I did as a project for him. Uh, I mean, I, I couldn't have made the transition into authorship the way I have with, without Bruce's counsel and support. But from 99 onward, I covered both CART and the IRL, the competing IndyCar series, uh, for National Speed Sport News and for ESPN. And I started out, I wanted to be a magazine writer. I, I love magazines to this day. I love going to the newsstand at Barnes & Noble, or if you're lucky enough, a private newsstand. Um, and just, you know, browsing and leaving with a stack of magazines. And you know, just the way the, the industry developed, I ended up, most of my work ended up being for the internet, which it, I, it's kind of disappointing. I mean, I just, there's... I, Part of me feels that internet writing, it just doesn't have the impact or permanence of, of a printed page, whether it's in a magazine or a book. But, you know, given the, the change in the media landscape and everything, it was enforced. And, and unfortunately, I've, you know, the, the last few years I've been writing these books, I didn't really intend to step out of the journalism game when I did. I, I didn't do it on my own terms. But I was fortunate to have not just a, a project to finish for Bruce that I'd started a long time ago, but... The ability to create the Indie Split book, which is, to me, it's a, it's a very important book. It's, it's the split or just the politics and the fact that 
IndyCar racing as a whole was unable to work in harmony over the last 50 years. It's the defining story of the last half decade or half century, excuse me. And it's never been told by a credible author, someone with skin in the game. When I went to the Indy 500 for the first time in 1978, that's exactly the time when the first United States Auto Club versus Kart split broke out. And my introduction to the sport was not just going to the track and learning about Rick Mears and Al Unser and people like that, but it was learning about the sport through what was happening at the time, which was these two groups fighting over how the direction or the leadership of the sport. And obviously it colored me because I, I made a career out of writing about IndyCar racing. And here I am having written what is essentially a, a post-World War II history of the sport. It's fascinating. And I recall when it happened, there was all these, you know, armchair quarterbacks, all of us fans talking about it and whether you loved it and hated it or didn't understand it, or it's almost like nobody really like what's really going on here. So can, without giving away the whole story, because I want people to buy your book because it's so fascinating and it's so in-depth and we don't have that kind of time anyway. Right. Can you give us maybe the quick, I, I shouldn't say the cliff notes, but <laughs> a, a picture of what really happened there. What caused this to happen and what were the ramifications and the fallout? It's hard to break it down into, you know, 500 words or whatever. Then excuse me, my cat's going to talk. <laughs> to me. We love having, having pets in the room. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but the Indianapolis 500 under the Holman family leadership of Tony Holman, it, it grew into a phenomenon, you know, by the, by the 60s. It was just, it was the world's largest single day sporting event. And honestly, it was a month-long event in those days. People had shorter attention spans and everything. But in the 70s, the cars got faster. The cars got more expensive. There was a different type of team owner that, that needed, needed IndyCar racing to be a year-long sport and not just the Indy 500 with a, a few other ragtag races thrown in with it. They saw what had happened in Formula One where a guy called Bernie Ecclestone, who was one of the team owners, got the team owners to agree to band together and they took over the commercial rights and the marketing of the series. And his master stroke was of course to sell the international TV rights and he became a billionaire because of that. But Dan Gurney looked at that and he thought that IndyCar racing could follow that example if the team owners could take over what they perceived as the shortness, uh, the weaknesses of USAC in terms of marketing and promotion. They felt the sport was stagnant and they didn't have any real qualms with the way it was being run technically. That wasn't their intention, and they had no desire to run the whole thing. They just wanted to see it marketed better to make it more of a compelling business case for them to be able to run 14 races a year. USAC resisted their efforts to work together. The result was the first split in 1979, where there was a CART series and there was a USAC series. All the major teams and drivers stayed with CART, with the exception of A.J. Foyt and a couple of others. USAC actually tried to prevent the CART teams from entering the Indy 500, but Cart took them to court and, and managed to get their way in. The following year, they did come together for about six months or four months. They managed to run three or four races together as something called the Championship Racing League. But then USAC and the Speedway broke away again. And there was kind of this uneasy coexistence throughout the 80s where Cart built the series by adding events like Long Beach and Cleveland and Laguna Seca and uh, added to some of the traditional markets like Milwaukee and, and such. Cart built the sport from being nothing plus the Indy 500 into something plus the Indy 500 in the 80s. At the same time, the Holman family handed the heir, Tony George, Tony Holman's grandson, when he turned 30, they put him in, in a charge of the power of running the Speedway. Tony and the Speedway did not recognize how Cart had grown the sport. They didn't respect that. 
The card owners at the same time did not respect the Indy 500's position in sustaining the sport, and they certainly didn't give Tony any respect because they kind of viewed him as just this arrogant punk that came in and was trying to buy their business away from them. So Tony was pretty steadfast, and, and he split again. He, he started the, the next split, which was when he formed the Indy Racing League, the IRL, and they split in 1996, and that split lasted 12 years. And it's most famous for the 96 season when, on the traditional date of the Indianapolis 500, CART staged a competing 500-mile race at Michigan Speedway. And it's very famous for having a multi-car crash as they approached the green flag. And since that race had been built about the greater cars and the experienced stars to to see those guys look like the fools. Didn't look very good. It was kind of a karma-shifting event. It took about five years for it really to, to take take hold. But this 12-year period when the IRL started in 1996, IndyCar racing was as successful as it's ever been in this country, thanks to the Mansell effect in 93 and 94. But they continued to sustain it through the rest of the 90s. But finally, the confusion and the animosity and the bitterness about two competing series and the confusion, and there was a period for five years or so where neither one was allowed to call themselves IndyCar. It added up to a lot of people becoming NASCAR fans. Uh, It's reflected in the numbers almost exactly. NASCAR took a lot of IndyCar fans during the split. Dale Earnhardt died in 2001. That gave them a big bump. They peaked in 2005, 2006, and it's been a long downhill slide for NASCAR since then. But but this split, it finally ended in 2008, where the two competing series, which Chip Ganassi equated to two bald guys fighting over a comb, no disrespect, <laughs> the madness, madness finally came to a stop, but there was no, the sport still kind of spun its wheels for the last 12 years. Tony George left after three or four years. He, he declined to continue as the head of the IRL. And it wasn't until late, 19, late 2019, early 2020, when Roger Penske bought the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the IndyCar Series, that I think that there was genuine closure to all of this, that it was finally a new era, uh, you know, a, a clean a clean start. And um, unfortunately, due to COVID, we didn't get to see the improvements that Mr. Penske's done to the, to the Speedway itself, and fans didn't get to come out to see IndyCar racing. But, in it, you know, the IndyCar Series, it's holding its own, and, and hopefully, as things hopefully open up and, and get more normal, so to speak, I hope that IndyCar has a chance to show that it's it's a viable a viable form of racing these days. Well, I sure hope so. When you got a guy like the captain in charge, um, Penske, uh, what it's got to get great. It's just got to. I mean, yeah. the way he runs things. So the standards are high. Yeah, I think we're all excited about that. Well, it's a fascinating book, Indy Split. Uh, we'll make sure we put links to where you listeners can get a copy. It's coming out very soon, uh, just in a few days here. So, uh, yeah, I have a picture of you that's on your show notes page here on the Cars yeah website. You're standing next to a very bright yellow chaparral, Johnny Rutherford's car. What's the story with that? Well, that's the legendary yellow submarine. Yep. That's the 1980 version of it, actually, the chaparral 2K, uh, designed predominantly by John Barnard, the great Formula One designer, who was an IndyCar guy before he was... Before his main Formula One phase, uh, they wheeled that car out a few years ago, and Johnny Rutherford was out there, and he ran a couple laps. And um, we're not on video, but behind me uh, on my wall is a, it's a picture of I drew of that car in 1981. No that kidding! On yeah. that day when I saw Rutherford uh, at the speedway, I took it out there to show him, and he signed it for me, which nice. I thought was kind of neat. Nice work. That's that's a neat thing. I mean, if I hear engines over at the track from from my front porch, I can always spin over <laughs> on my bike and. 
see what happens to be running. And every now and then you'll get rewarded by a Formula One car or, yeah. or a 60s Indy car or something like that. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, you know, all great people are typically driven by some type of an inspiration or a person in their life. Is there a key mentor in your life that helped you with your career and pushed you along? I know you mentioned uh, Mr. McCaw. I mean, he's uh, a steadfast part of the Pacific Northwest here. And as I mentioned, I spent many days in their garage at VRM uh, with uh, his folks, his wonderful team there, shooting pictures of cars that he has. And boy, does he have some nice car. He has a, he has, I'm not sure if it's still there. I haven't been there in a while, but they have a table in their lobby uh, a coffee table that's a glass top and the base is a BRM motor, ah. you know, <laughs> I always thought I want that coffee table in my living room. I think my wife <laughs> might even pull that off, but is there a key mentor in your life? It's easy to say when you, when you get into car racing at an early age, like I did, it's easy to say that your heroes are drivers and, and the early guys that I liked were Nicky Lauda and Rick Mears, but my real heroes were the journalists. One, as I told you, I, I, I got into IndyCar racing by reading I discovered that the Indianapolis Star and the Indianapolis News, I had to ride my bike across the river to a newsstand to get them. But they covered IndyCar racing, and, and Robin Miller was the man then, and he's still the man. And, you know, Robin, who wrote for the Star, he was a huge influence. He's the best. I really respected a, another author, Gordon Kirby, for his knowledge and, and his work ethic. Uh, he was the main autosport correspondent for the U.S. in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. The first guy I really got into for their writing was Nigel Roebuck, who wrote about Formula One for autosport for many years. And another another guy, an automotive writer in that regard, is Peter Egan, oh, uh, a longtime course. columnist from Road and Track, absolutely one of my favorite writers. The neatest thing about it all is, is that Gordon and Robin have become close friends, and, you know, Nigel comes to the 500 when he can and, and we get to have dinner together. And, and that's just that's a treat for me when I think about the relationship I had with these kids by learning who they were, by reading about them, reading their work as a 14 year old to to now being, you know, colleagues and everything. It's really special. You know, you, you ask, and do I give advice in terms? I, I was very focused on a very narrow and specific career path. This is what I wanted to do once I you know got my teens out of the way and, and got my head straight. It's what I wanted to do, but there were very, very, very few opportunities and there's exponentially fewer still now just because of the way the media has changed. I think whatever you do, uh, and for me, it was trying to get a career in IndyCar racing. The key is just to be passionate about what you want to do. Be persistent. Don't be bothersome. You know, you, you can be over the top and bug people. People always say it's not what you know, it's who you know, but I'd amend that to say that it's the timing is important too. You need to have the right time to meet, to, to show the, what, you know, to the, who, you know, if you meet them at the wrong time, it's yeah. so it's a combination of things. And, and if you get all three or four of these elements, right, that's the lightning bolt that, that I had at, at the speedway in 93 when Robin and Gordon helped me get started. You know, it's great advice. I was chasing Denise McCluggage before we lost her to be a guest on this show, and she paid me a nice compliment. At one point, she calls. She goes, okay, Mark, okay, I'll be on your show. She goes, you're the most politely persistent man I've ever met. And yeah. uh, <laughs> so I guess it, it paid off. She was, I didn't know at the time, but she was ill and we lost her a few months later after I interviewed her. One but, of the greats. Yeah, definitely another one of those greats. Let's take a short break. and we come back, I'm going to ask you about a big challenge. So keep the seatbelts on. We're at the Speedway with John Oriovitz. We'll call him Oreo. We'll be right back. What began as a charitable car show has grown into the world's greatest collector car auctions, raising over $133 million for charitable organizations to date. 
For nearly 50 years, automotive enthusiasts from all over the world have enjoyed the Barrett-Jackson Collector Car Auctions, and I'm a huge fan. Regarded as the barometer of the collector car industry, their auctions are world-class lifestyle events where thousands of the world's most sought-after unique and valuable automobiles cross the block in front of a global audience, in person, on TV, or streamed online. Barrett-Jackson produces the world's greatest collector car auctions in Scottsdale, Arizona, Palm Beach, Florida, Las Vegas, Nevada, and new for 2021, Houston, Texas. The excitement of Barrett-Jackson auctions is contagious, and a unique experience is not to be missed. And coming soon, something new for you Cars Yeah listeners. I'll be teaming up with Craig Jackson on the first ever Barrett-Jackson podcast, coming to your mobile devices every week. Listen here on Cars Yeah and check out the Barrett-Jackson website for unique details on this new, exciting podcast that I'm very proud to be a part of. And be sure to visit BarrettJackson.com today. Barrett-Jackson, the world's greatest collector car auctions. So John, or Oreo, what a great name, Oreo. And also make a great cat name since you got a cat there at your feet today. Um, you know, if, when you inherit that name when you're six years old and you get teased about it when you're a kid. You it's, probably get tired of it. It's you know? a while to yeah. embrace your inner Oreo. <laughs> there you go. Well, I'm sure you have by now. Like I said at the beginning, everybody loves an Oreo. Uh, can't eat just one, you know, so the whole bag disappears. That's why we don't have them in our house, right? Eat them all the time. <laughs> so what's a big obstacle, big challenge that you faced in your life that you could share? And more importantly, what was that lesson learned that you took forward from that lesson, that experience, I should say? I think the biggest personal challenge I've had was being a single parent. I have a 14-year-old son, and from the time he was two until probably 10 or 11, I was the primary parent. Wow. And that was obviously a challenge because of my travel schedule. But what I learned was that it's okay to ask for help, that it's okay to reach out, that people are there to be supportive for you, whether it's family or friends or even people in the IndyCar community. I'm really grateful for their, their support during those times. But, I mean, there was a silver lining because I brought my son with me to the races. It was go with daddy to work time a lot, probably a lot more than was appropriate, but it was a necessary circumstance at the time. And the cooperation I got from, from IndyCar at the time and, and um, you know, certain people in the community was really gratifying. And as a result, Patrick, he's a, he's a well-traveled teenager, put it that way. I'll bet. And yeah. We, Lucky kid. shared a lot of experiences thanks to racing. So professionally, I'm still working through my biggest challenge and that is, you know, I worked as a deadline reporter for 25 years, and and when ESPN.com made the decision to stop covering auto racing, their timing a month before the start of the season was, let's just call it unfortunate. It left me in a really bad position. You know, it's one thing if you, if you learn you're going to lose your contract, you know, in September for for the next year, but when they tell you January 20th or whatever, you're just, you've got no hope. So... I didn't handle it with, with the most dignity and grace at first. I had a lot of frustration and a lot of woe is me. But eventually what transpired from it is the indie split book. That is ultimately the product of getting out of the rat race of the reporting lifestyle. I, I mean, obviously, I was fortunate to have the, the support of, of Bruce McCaw in doing the book. But, you know, it's, it's literally for me, it's a lifetime project. And it's something that when I woke up from the fog and realized you have the time, you have the ability, let's get it done. And here we are. <laughs> yeah. It's a great story. You know, I always say this because everybody 
typically, not everybody, but most people and many people I've had on the show have gone through a similar situation where a massive career change, not their fault, has occurred. And it's very, very challenging. And one of the things uh, when that occurred to me or happened to me was a good friend of mine put his hand on my shoulder and said, everything's going to be okay. And sometimes just hearing that and then that kind of snaps you out of it to go, oh, (laughs) all right. And then you move forward and you find something new to do. My son said something exactly like that to me last night, and I thought to myself, it's amazing how smart and mature that kid is. He, yeah. <laughs> he, he gave me some he, – he picked me up right when I needed it. You know, and the great thing is most kids never even go to their parents' workplace. They really don't quite even know what their parents do, quite honestly. And if they've got a, a hardworking parent's mom or dad that's gone at work all the time – they don't get to see him. So the fortunate situation that your son got to spend that time with you, yeah, he will look back long after he's a full-fledged adult and go, wow, what a lucky kid I was. Pretty amazing. So uh, yeah. I, so I, I joke, uh, he hasn't traveled as much in the last couple of years as he's gotten more into his computer and electronics and everything. That happens at, at teenage years, yeah. But yeah, I've, I've, I'm lucky that I've been able to, to be more of a dad than, than a lot of men have the chance to be. Well, my hat's off to you. That's uh, not an easy job being a single parent. Uh, Fortunately, I haven't had to deal with that, but I have a lot of friends who have. It's not simple. So uh, you've handled it masterfully, my friend. Let's talk a little bit about a bucket list. Looking ahead to what's next, is there another project you'd like to take on? Something you're thinking about? Well, you know, the media has changed, Mark, and the world has changed. And You think? (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit. It's it's funny. I was talking to Nate Ryan from NBC last week, and uh, I said, "Man, I miss the people. I miss being out at the track, and uh, because that's where my friends were. We might live in New Hampshire or California, but we'd see each other on the weekends." And yeah, and he said it's not the same, and it's it's not. I mean, anybody can can do the coverage these days. It's all on TV. You can get all the timing and everything. Anybody can be a a, a journalist from home. You know, I was really fortunate. I, I, so I don't have any desire to get back into deadline journalism, especially news gathering. That's that's no fun. And I was really fortunate in my last few years with ESPN that I kind of slid into more of an elder statesman role. And I was able to focus on analysis and commentary rather than try to chase down news stories. And But ultimately, yes, the, the, the goal is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that the Indy Split book kind of helps relaunch and redefine my career a little bit. Yeah. And, I definitely would like to try to find interesting quality book projects to pursue. Um, the challenge, of course, is making the numbers work. Of course, uh, yeah, books books are are tough. But I tell you, you've teamed up with an awesome team, Octane Press, and those folks there have sent me many, many great authors that have been on this show. Uh, they do a masterful job. So you've got a great uh, a gr- great collaboration going there. Yeah, I do. And and we'll just see what, what the interest level is. Um, I think that there are a few of the modern guys that deserve the book treatment. I think Scott Dixon is a guy that people don't really understand or appreciate. A uh, six-time champion who's, you know, basically third in the record book all time now. Yeah. Uh, Dario Franchitti is another great guy that's just oh, a, yeah. a great person and, and uh, a guy whose career deserves a book. I had the privilege of ghostwriting his column for Autosport for a couple of years. And uh, it's a good ghost column captures the voice of, of the subject. And it, it's not like something you read on uh, the player's tribune that sounds like it's been ghost written. It, it actually sounds like the guy that's speaking the words. So, so yeah, in, in my dream world, I want to try to pr- pursue some more of these book projects. And um, well, 
move beyond the dream world and make it a reality world. I think you'll be fine. Uh, you're going to do great. So uh, there you go. Onward and upward. So let's talk about a special vehicle in your life. Well, I don't know. I'd want the safest car possible given the danger <laughs> of IndyCar racing. Well, if you're at the wheel, you know, you're in control. So the throttle goes both ways. I think I think the car I would take would be a late 90s era Reynard from the era when, when they didn't race at the Speedway. So when, when they were off with the kart series, that would be the, the choice there. I thought hard about your, your special vehicle, and I came up with an odd choice. Okay. And I'll just give you a little rundown of my vehicle history. My first car was a Volvo 142. Uh, my first nice car was a, a well-used 76 BMW 530i that was good fun. I've been a faithful Honda customer. I really enjoyed it. I had an 85 Prelude that I loved driving. I had a, a 2005 Acura TSX. That was a great car. That was a good car. Uh, more recently, I've had a series of used Audis. My current daily driver is a 2010 A4. Nothing too exciting. but oh, I like those cars a lot. Does everything well. Four-wheel drive, all that stuff. Here, here's the most memorable, and it's 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 really incongruent with my car life. I, I lived in the country for about a six-year period, uh, about 40 miles west of, of Indianapolis, and I felt that I needed a four-wheel drive truck. Now, I'm not a truck person, and I'm not a Toyota person, but the only thing I looked at was a Toyota Tacoma, and I bought a very used 98 Tacoma four-wheel drive truck. It had 170,000 miles on it when I bought it. Wow. I paid way too much for it. I thought I'm getting robbed. Nope. It was fantastic. I it had nearly 300,000 miles on it when when it got hit by a drunk driver. Oh no. Fortunately, while nobody was in it, while it was parked in downtown Lafayette, Indiana. And I was cash poor at the time, and so I took the insurance settlement, and I regret it to this day. I would so love to have a Tacoma of that generation from 96, 97 through 2004. I don't have any interest in the later ones. They're bigger, they're boxier, they're more boring, they're more Toyota-like. But the, my Tacoma, it's honestly, it's it's the only Toyota I've ever driven that had character, you know, that that, that I just looked forward to driving. And uh, so there, there's a strange choice for you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love the backstory. That's why I like to ask that question the way I do, because you get a little bit story about that. My father, before I lost him, and it's been about four years now since he's passed, had one of those that was about two years old. And when we were, my sister and I were going through his things, he had three or four vehicles, I think. Fortunately, none of them were lost Ferrari GTO or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he had a guy. Yeah, he, he had a, his sports cars were way back when I was a kid. He kind of uh, grew out of all that stuff. But uh, a guy that had helped him a lot around his home when my dad was getting older and my dad was always very active uh, was a gentleman from uh, Tijuana. He had like five kids. The guy didn't have much money. He had a junky old truck and he would make money by coming into San Diego and hauling trash for people and doing odd jobs. But he was really nice to my father. And my dad left us a note in his belongings that we happened to come across. I don't know how we found it because things were a little bit disarrayed. And it said, hey, if you, you and your sister could find it in your heart to give uh, Jose my Tacoma, it would really mean something to him. Wow. And so I called him and he came over and uh, we gave him that truck. We gifted it to him so he didn't have to pay taxes on it and stuff because you can That's do that. tremendous. And it was a wonderful story. I mean, the guy just started crying and um, he said, you know, if I can help you. And he did help us a lot with because my dad never threw anything away. So <laughs> <laughs> he was an old farmer from Texas. At least he grew up on a farm when he was a kid. So it was a fun story. But I drove that truck a little bit and I'm not really a truck guy and I didn't need one. But I thought, man, if I needed a truck, this would be a nice truck to keep because this thing is, is really nice. It was only, I think, two years old or something like that. Okay. 
Okay. That. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but it was a nice story and a nice oh, way a to great story. Great story. A way to to give something forward to someone that could absolutely could really use it. And uh, he was quite helpful with uh, disposing of a lot of stuff and took a lot of things off our hands. But uh, yeah, the Toyota pickup truck was cool. Uh, now, if I'm going to create in your head a little bit here, John, if you were a vehicle, you were manifest as a vehicle. What would you be, and more importantly, why? Well, I I I'd preface this by saying that when I on social media. When I started out 10 or 12 years ago, I created an album of photos I called Car Culture. And anytime I saw a remotely interesting car, I took a picture of it. But the thing is, and and what actually sparked it was I was driving through Kansas on US 36, driving to a race in 2001. And I stayed overnight at this hotel in Marysville, Kansas, I think. And as I drove through the parking lot in the morning, it was just full of old, dusty, nondescript cars, but there, there were cars I hadn't seen in years, Mercury Montegos and, and things like that. And I've gotten to a point now where I'm far more excited if I see a mint condition 1986 Crown Victoria than, than if a Lamborghini drives down the street. Uh, it's, so if I was to be a car, I would be, and, and given that I am kind of a grumpy old man, <laughs> I am going to say that I would be the first car that I probably ever rode in, which was my grandfather's 1965 Ford Galaxy 500. Just kind of basic, no-nonsense, reliable, straightforward, yet classic in its own way. You know, it's kind of fun when you see cars like that are somewhat nondescript, but they're loved, especially if they're owned by an original or second owner. And yeah. I'm part of a Facebook group. I'm part of many Facebook groups. That one is called Malays, which are those oh, car, yes. those Malays cars, you know. And you look at some of those, and every once in a while, I'll see one and take a picture and post it on their site. And everyone gets so excited by those things. And look, a Granada. I know, <laughs> I know. There's still one alive. One, the last one that survived. So uh, I think that's cool, and especially the tie-in with your your family member as well. Are there some ways that you're working to give back because the car industry so many people do give back to others help be a mentor help others get into the profession well i'm i obviously i try to offer advice to any of the young kids coming in there aren't that many these days in the media center and and i mean i didn't go to a media center last year and i'm going to texas this weekend which will be my first race actually doing race coverage since probably the 2019 indy 500 wow so that's exciting uh, something to look forward to. You know, it's it's funny. I mentioned Nigel Mansell, and when he was here at the Speedway in 93 and I broke in, I had an internship with the media staff at the Speedway that year. I got him to sign my auto course book, and, uh-huh. and I asked him, I'm like, well, do you have any advice for an aspiring young journalist? He's like, oh, find another line of work. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> and And I mean, I joke that now, too. The best advice I can say is, is that Teams and organizations are very keen to control their own message these days, whether it's the Indianapolis Colts or the Seahawks or uh, the Speedway or NASCAR or whoever. They're ha- they, want, they want to break their own stories. Mm-hmm. And th- the trend now is to hire former journalists to work for these sporting organization websites and everything. So if you want to write and you want to be a content provider, that's probably the best way in these days. The, the actual media available opportunities are just none. I mean, nobody sends a reporter to cover races anymore. Sad to say. Yeah, different times. I, I generally, a year, every year I, I'm asked to do a guest lecture to, uh, they actually have a motorsports major at IUPUI uh, downtown here. 
And I tell them, you know, it's not just about the driver. There's so many things you can do in racing. You can be a mechanic, you can be an engineer, you can be PR, you can be hospitality, you can be marketing, you can be transportation, a truckie. Um, so, you know, don't limit yourself. And you've got you've to start small. You know, the, the sad thing about the media people these days is that you'll have these websites and um, they don't pay them to work, but they'll get them credentialed. And that's how they get paid. And, you know, I just I'd, I'd hate to be 30 years younger than I am at this point and, and, and try to deal with the new reality of it all. It just it just seems a lot less glamorous. And, and I always I, I joke sometimes that I was born 10 or 15 years too late that I missed the great racing in the 60s and 70s and the great concerts. I'm a big rock and roll music enthusiast. And it's the same thing with the media. I mean, in, in the days of Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart, the drivers would go out to eat with the journalists at yeah. night. And they did it because they were friends, not because a PR person was dragging them on along on behalf of a sponsor. So, right, yeah. And I just, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I long for that era. It's, it's what made me want to be part of it. And I'm, don't get me wrong, I've, I'm incredibly lucky to have worked through the era that I did, really privileged to have, you know, worked with some great drivers and people and over the years. But at the same time, I and, and maybe there's a bit of that for everybody, but I do romanticize the era when I was a kid before I could have been involved, of course. you know, up through the late 70s or so. I think that's a common common thought uh, among the ages, uh, probably going all the way back to the Renaissance time. So uh, <laughs> if only. So your book is titled Indie Split by Octane Press. Again, listeners, you'll get a link to that on John's show notes page, uh, or you can just Google that and you'll find it uh, at Amazon and everywhere that you buy books. Uh, now you mentioned some other books you've written. Um, would you like to mention those so we can throw those in there here too? Well, I did a I did a history of Bruce's team of PacWest Racing. It's called Time Flies. Uh, that one was published by Documentary Media out of Seattle, makers of great books out there. Uh, you can actually buy that one on my website at johnoriovitz.com. Okay. Another interesting thing I've done, and, and I don't really have a link to buy it, but my friend Kazuki Sato uh, is a Japanese journalist who's covered IndyCar racing since Honda came over here, and he's produced a series of books that are generally photo books, but they have... Uh, they, they, they feature an, an essay by yours truly. So they're nice little coffee table books. Uh, reach out to me through my website. I can hook you up with those. Long time ago for David Bull Publishing, I did a book about the Honda cart engine program called A Winning Adventure. And uh, I should have copies of that uh, available through my own website soon. You know, beyond that, I'm... I'm I'm not a, a big reader, you know. <laughs> I always find uh, it fun when authors say that kind of thing. But uh, well, mostly- I, I am. I, well, I should have, I should change that to say I rarely read fiction. Ah. I'm not a big reader of fiction. I do read a lot of books about sports, mainly racing, and I read a lot of music books as well. I would recommend anything by John Feinstein. I think A Season on the Brink, the year that he did with Bob Knight in the Indiana basketball program in the mid '80s, is arguably the finest sports book of all time. Uh, it's certainly the most truthful and revealing sports book of all time. Uh, um, it's it's unflattering but accurate. And uh, the other the other author I recommend is Neil Peart, uh, who most people know uh, as the late drummer of Rush. Ah, yeah. And Neil Peart died a year or so ago. Yeah, just recently. Yep. And he created a series of books about his travels. He wrote a book when his he lost his wife and his daughter within a year, and he took to the road, and he wrote a very philosophical book about dealing with the loss and everything. And, but then after that, when Rush would tour, Neil Peart would ride a motorcycle, a BMW GS uh, dual-purpose bike between, between concerts, and he always had a riding companion, but he would document these journeys. 
and they've produced it's a series of books now, uh, like he, here and there, here and they all have similar titles. And they're just, they're great from so many perspectives, music, motorcycles, travel, philosophy. They're, they're just, and he's a wonderful, he, he was the lyricist for Rush as well. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, he's uh, been, so uh, he's a really gifted writer. He's been mentioned on this show before. And I'd be remiss to not uh, say we just recently lost David Bull. Uh, I don't know if you know, yeah, you know that he just recently passed. Uh, I met David probably 20 plus years ago and was with him that weekend before that fateful motorcycle ride home where he basically died three times uh, after being hit on a roadway and had a, just a really challenging life afterwards, losing the ability of his arms and legs. And, uh, you know, but he kept such a uh, remarkable spirit about himself. You would never have known yes. it if you talked to him other than he had trouble speaking. Um, he was a very early guest of mine and it was so nice of him to take a chance on a new podcaster who I didn't know what the hell I was doing, uh, <laughs> to be on my show. And, uh, we really, really miss him dearly. The books that he published and will be with us forever are top, top notch books. So, uh, our well, thoughts. the book I mentioned earlier, the first book that I co-authored, uh, a winning adventure about the Honda program. That's a David Bull book. Right. Yeah. And I know that I know that David has some notable projects in the works, uh, among them, a biography of Luigi Canetti, the, the longtime North American Ferrari distributor. And I hope there's a way that these projects will see the light of day still. I'd, I'd love to help. I that sure hope so. Yeah. Possible. Our thoughts out to his family, his children, and, and all of his friends and all of his fans uh, for the great David Bull. Let's take one last short break here. We come back. We're going to go on the ultimate drive before we say goodbye, so stick with us. We'll be right back. I've discovered Linkage. It's a new quarterly publication and website that covers the automotive market, driving, restoring, collecting, and discovering your passion for motor vehicles. Linkage is about experiences opinions, and values. Linkage is an actual, informed, reasoned opinion based on first-hand experiences. A talented Linkage team covers the automotive world, the people who share your passion and mine, smart, considered, rational, and experienced opinions, ones you can learn from and grow. That includes our passion that drives auctions and the collector car market. So come with me and join us on this journey. Join Linkage. Be sure when you're subscribing to use the code CARSYEAH and they'll give you $10 off. Linkage, geared for the automotive life. Subscribe today at LinkageMag.com. CARSYEAH is proud to support our veterans, which is why I've teamed up with our nonprofit partner, TechForce Foundation, through its Veterans at Work Military Transition Campaign. The tech shortage is very real, and our country needs skilled, qualified techs to keep our cars, trucks, airplanes, and fleets rolling. When so many vets build their skills in maintaining and servicing vehicles when deployed, TechForce helps transition those skills to jobs as professional technicians when they come home. Learn more about TechForce Foundation and its Veterans at Work Military Transition Fund at techforce.org today. So let's go on the ultimate drive today, John. You get to pick the car, the person you're with, living or deceased, and uh, what would you be talking about and who would be at the wheel? So take it away. <laughs> I love to drive. Cool. Always have, hopefully always will. In 2001, one of my best accomplishments, proudest things is that I drove to every race I covered on this continent, whether it was Monterey, Mexico, Vancouver, BC, 
uh, Laguna Seca, did about 35,000 miles in a bunch of rental cars and, and occasionally in my own cars. And, and it was fantastic experience. Just driving still the best way to see the country. Oh, Unfortunately, yeah. there's kind of a middle portion where I live that's kind of boring behind the wheel. You've got to get about six, seven hours west of here before the scenery starts to kick in. But once it does, it, it kicks in with a vengeance. So I'm, I'm not averse to a long drive. So what I would do, just as a, an automotive history enthusiast, I would recreate the Cannonball Baker Sea to Shining Sea <laughs> Memorial Trophy Dash or Run or whatever it was called, uh, as immortalized by Brock Yates and Dan Gurney. And I would do it at a more sedate pace. I would not for you. <laughs> out. I try to do it in 35 hours or 26 hours, which I gather is the record now. It's during COVID, I gather it was a thing to... There's been several people ball. that keep so, knocking that thing down. It's it's just so insane. My, my way my way of doing it was you know drive six seven hundred miles, hit the occasional national park, good meal, good night of sleep. My driving companion, I would need a driving companion, so we'd have to share the driving with that much driving. Would be David Gilmore, the guitarist and voice of Pink Floyd. Nice. Uh, he is my favorite musician. He's a private man. He doesn't give many interviews. And I think to have him as a captive audience for four or five days of driving would probably produce my next book project. Among oh, other you, yeah, that'd be cool. But we would talk, obviously, about whatever David wants to talk about. But if I was able to guide the conversation, I want to know his his side of the Pink Floyd and the whole Roger Waters conflict. It's funny that my life has been marked by studying two conflicts USAC, Card, IRL, and David Gilmore versus <laughs> yeah. Roger Waters and yeah. Pink Floyd. And of course, we would listen to a lot of, and it'd be bad for him and great for me, but a lot of live Pink Floyd and, and David's solo work, which I like even better than than much of his Pink Floyd work. The, little, the Roger stuff's a little heavy for me. So yeah, that's, uh, as for a car, it, it would be a, uh, it would not, it'd be a comfortable sedan. It, it would not be ostentatious. It'd be practical, kind of a bit like David himself. So, you know, Maybe an Audi S6, something like that. Yeah, sounds like a fun, fun trip. Yeah, I love uh, watching YouTube David Gilmore videos, and especially later his uh, single stuff. You know, with just him is pretty darn cool as well. Well, seeing David and Rick Wright perform Echoes yeah. during the 2006 tour in the small venues for which that early Pink Floyd music was was created was truly special. Yeah. Absolutely. Ah, paints a pretty picture here, John. You've taken us on a great ride today. Before I let you go, do you have maybe a parting piece of wisdom, guidance, a, a mantra you might share with us? My best piece of advice to anybody is just enjoy your life. You've only got one shot at it. Try to try to get some kind of happiness and satisfaction out of every day. And going back to the Pink Floyd thing, and I have to credit Roger Waters for this because he was the chief lyricist, but there's one of the lines in the song, Time, it's, it's kind of my uh, motto or philosophy in life, and that's all you touch and all you see is all your life will ever be. Those are good words to live by. Yeah, absolutely. So how can people keep up with you? You mentioned you have a website? Yeah, I go to my website. I should. I, I wish I was more motivated to create fresh content for it, but it's, boy, it's hard to... It's hard to watch a race on TV and sit down and type a story about it when there's not a paycheck <laughs> on the other side. Well, it's you just, think? Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, a little bit. Is that johnoriovitz.com? johnoriovitz.com. You can read my greatest hits there and you can buy Time Flies there and reach out to me if you're interested in any of the other book projects I've been involved in. Absolutely. Uh, octanepress.com or wherever books are sold in terms of buying Indie Split. Uh, it is available on Amazon. I mean, shoot, if you want to PayPal me 35 bucks, I'll ship you one. There, there <laughs> I mean, you go. He might even sign it for I, you. I'm, so. I'm, uh, I don't really care where, where folks buy it. I, I hope they do. I hope folks enjoy the book. I think it's an important book for IndyCar fans. I think it's a book that needed to be written. Not everybody's going to agree with it. It's, it is about the politics. I mean, it's, it's about the racing and the culture and the technology too. But the bottom line is, is that CART versus IRL, that whole split, it was, it was a philosophical war. You know, you had the elite road racers and the down-home grubby oval guys, and, and uh, it came to a head. And the, the sad thing is, after all that fighting, what we have right now is we have an IndyCar series that's run by the IRL, but looks just like the old cart series. Yep. So there you go. What price progress? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, I'd encourage all you listeners to get your hands on a copy. If you're an automotive enthusiast and you have friends and family in your life, you know, Father's Day is coming up. So that'd be a nice gift for a dad or a dad to be or like me, a grandpa to be. So uh, there you go. Check it out. I'll make sure I put links to all of those on John's website. The spelling of John's last name is O-R-E-O-V-I-C. Z, CZ. Wasn't there a great motorcycle, CZ motorcycle? I think so. Or maybe hmm. that's, maybe I'm thinking of the handgun. I don't know. <laughs> it I'm could thinking be of those little oval stickers for cars from Czechoslovakia. That, that too. See. That too. I'll make sure to put links on John's uh, show notes page and the Cars Yeah website. And my shout out, thank you to Joanne at Octane Press for introducing me to John. Thank you, Joe, for doing that. Much appreciated. John, thanks for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and sharing your life. What a fun one you've had. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you either at an indie race or down the road. Well, thank you, Mark. It's It's been a real pleasure to come on your podcast and just have a, a nice organic conversation about cars and driving and life. It just happens to promote my book, and I really appreciate the opportunity in the airspace. Well, that's what we do here at Cars, yeah, and I love promoting my guests. So check it out, Indie Split. It's a book you got to have. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars, yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.